You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College in the fresh air of a new semester here in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 39 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, and welcome to our new season, season five. How was your summer, Drew? Tell you what, a lot, a lot of changes over the summer for me. Yeah, I might have mentioned uh, at the end of last season, towards the end of the spring last year, I moved from my beloved Harrisburg to the heart of so-called Amish country, yeah. Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Well, if you go to the city of Lancaster, there's not a lot of Amish here. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I mean, you beg to differ. Go, go to go to Central Market. You okay. know, this, okay. it's, it's fair it's, enough. But but yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously a very it's a very diverse place, and that's part of why we love it. Um, my wife has been a teacher there in the city for four years now, so we are ready to put an end to her commute. So we decided to move there. I also passed my comprehensive exam. Congratulations! Can we can we inject in like an applause, like uh, sound bite there? Well, after he says, I'm on it. I'm on yeah. it. <laughs> so now I am just a dissertation away from being your equal. You Dr. have reached Fia. the ABD stage. I am. I am. Right? And uh, I should also add, I'm starting a new part-time position here at Messiah. I'm now the project manager for the Digital Harrisburg Initiative. That's right. We're working, working this year with some of our institution's brightest young historians developing the Digital Harrisburg Project. Yeah. But how about you, John? I was going to say, busy? though, I see you around a lot more now. I don't know, I know. if that's good I, or bad. but it's, yeah, well, yeah, well, you can come knocking on my door with these transcripts on my okay. office now. Well, for me, Drew, it was a believe me summer. Um, and if that doesn't make sense to you out there in podcast land, let me explain. I was on the road most of the summer promoting my new book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. Uh, needless to say, it was a wild ride. I was in 10 different cities. I made appearances on C-SPAN and CNN, and I just had a lot of great conversations and met a lot of great people along the way as we were talking about the role that evangelicals played in electing Donald Trump. But you're not done, right? No, that's right. Uh, the sort of second leg of the book tour is, is starting to gear up. In fall 2018, I will be visiting several college campuses around the Midwest. Many of those visits, I might add, will coincide with the biennial meeting of the Conference on Faith and History at Calvin College from October 4 through 6. Uh, this year, I am the program chair. Uh, so I'm looking forward to finally seeing the fruits of my labors uh, for the past year. Uh, we've been putting together what I think is a great program. There's going to be hundreds of historians there, and it's just going to be, I think, a great conference. I'm really looking forward to it. But there's also a part of me that will be glad to have this administrative task behind me. And as long as we're talking about Believe Me, I think we should tell our listeners that your new book is now available as one of our gifts for our new patrons. Yes, Drew, we're happy to offer it. Uh, so if you become a patron of the podcast, this is one of the books you can choose if you come in at uh, the right level. But speaking of this, Drew, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you can become a patron of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, or just generally how you can connect with what we're doing here. Well, the Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. We also want to welcome our brand new sponsor, the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. 
Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beattie and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits and the public sector, Bob Beattie has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org. That's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T-G-R-O-U-P.org to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. Yeah, I'm really excited to have Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group with us here as a sponsor of the show. I've known Bob for a while, and I'm not sure if we've ever met face-to-face, but I think we will be meeting this fall at a conference, the conference I just mentioned, at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is a veteran of the public history world, um, very, very involved in the leadership of the uh, American Association of State and Local History. If you have public history needs or if your community wants to explore the ways in which history can bring uh, a sense of revitalization, uh, a sense of identity to your communities, and I think Bob would even say sort of economic revitalization in some ways, contact uh, Bob Beattie and the Lindhurst Group. We are thrilled again to have him as one of our sponsors. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really synergistic relationship. So this is a I'm I'm really excited to have this at the at the start here of season five. Drew, how can how can our listeners connect with us? Well, the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media. So again, follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And it's all about the reviews. We need those iTunes reviews. We got to get higher up in the rankings. So get in there. Don't just give us the five stars, although we like the five stars. <laughs> Say something nice too. talk about how how glorious John Fia's New Jersey accent is. Do whatever you want. But I mean, that really is key. That engagement helps us get discovered more easily. Drew, as you might recall, we started season four last year with a historical reflection on the racial violence at Charlottesville that took place on August 11th and 12th, 2017. Yes, I remember that episode well. Our guest was uh, historian Kelly Baker, and she's the author of a wonderful book, The Gospel According to the Klan. Yeah, that was a great interview with Kelly. Go back and listen to that interview if you have the chance. So for the opening episode of season five, we're going to actually return to Charlottesville. And our guest is Nicole Hammer. Nicole is a very creative and prolific historian who is passionate about bringing the study of the past to bear on current events. I'm a big fan of her podcast, Past Present, which she co-hosts with historian Neil Young and Natalia Melman Petrozella. It does a great job discussing contemporary events through the lens of history. It essentially allows you to be a fly on the wall listening to a fascinating conversation between brilliant historians as they discuss the headlines in a faculty break room kind of situation. I didn't know Neil Young podcasted. This, this is the historian, Neil Young. All right. Neil J. Young. Yes, think, thank you. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, not to be confused. We're not talking harv- harvest here. We're talking. <laughs> he is a very good historian. <laughs> and and uh, yeah. works on subjects quite, quite near and dear to your heart. He's, he's right. also a, right. a historian of the religious right. Right, right. Um, some of you also might be familiar with the op-ed column that Nicole runs at the Washington Post. It's titled Made by History. And again, this is just another attempt uh, to make history relevant in our current age. But on this episode... Nicole Hemmer is going to talk about A12. This is her six-part podcast series reflecting on the first anniversary of the violence in Charlottesville. I listened to all six episodes this week, and I found the series to be outstanding. Uh, In many ways, it's a real model for historical podcasting. And I think the best way to describe it, Drew, is a a podcast documentary uh, of sorts. And of course, I also learned a lot that I didn't know about Charlottesville, the events of August 11 and 12, 2017. And she just really, with her storytelling and her guests, really bring those tragic events to life. So get out there and listen to that. Uh, See if you can find that. It's available on all the podcaster, the podcatchers, I should say. A12. Yeah, it's it's riveting in the same way that any of these uh, serialized, notice, I use that word, serial. Any of these serialized limited audio series are especially struck by how it really tackled the question of why Charlottesville. Yeah. Uh, The events are often contextualized within national conversations about the age of Trump, 
but this series also addresses why the community of Charlottesville matters as well. We will get to Nicole Hemmer in a couple of minutes, but first, you have some commentary for us. On August 20, 2018, the day before the start of the new academic year, students and protesters toppled Silent Sam. Silent Sam is a bronze statue of a Confederate soldier which has stood since 1913 in the upper quad of the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Sam was a gift to the college from the United Daughters of the Confederacy, an American hereditary association of Southern white women with the primary purpose of commemorating Confederate soldiers through the erection of monuments. The removal of Silent Sam is just the latest in a series of controversies, many of them on college campuses, about what to do with monuments that celebrate the heritage of the Confederate States of America, a heritage that is mostly inseparable from slavery and white supremacy. Sam is a symbol of the average Confederate soldier. The statue is dedicated to the North Carolina students who fought for the South in the Civil War. What should we do with these monuments to a racist past? Should we remove them, like New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landro did with the Robert E. Lee monument that stood high above one of the city's busy traffic circles? Are the removal of these statues equivalent to erasing history? Should we ever erase history? If they stay in place, does it send a message that a particular town or community is endorsing white supremacy? These are not easy questions to answer. The answers to a lot of them will often depend on the role a particular statue or monument has played in a particular community and perhaps continues to play in that community. In Chapel Hill, the debate continues to rage. Now that Silent Sam has been felled, What should the university do with him? Perhaps a recent case at the University of Texas at Austin might help. For 82 years, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States of America, stood in the South Mall of the Lone Star State's premier public university. Because Davis led a confederacy driven by white supremacy and the defense of slavery, the administration at the university decided to remove the statue from its place of honor on campus. It was eventually moved to a museum where it became part of a permanent exhibit on campus titled From Commemoration to Education, Pompeo Capini's Statue of Jefferson Davis. The exhibit tells the story of the monument, its creator, and the role that it played in Jim Crow, Texas. According to a recent article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, the exhibit has received largely positive feedback from students and professors. It has become a learning tool for academic conversations. In the end, these monuments are part of our collective past. They not only tell us something about the Confederacy during the Civil War, but more importantly, They tell us about the motives of the white supremacists of the Jim Crow South who had them erected. These monuments are symbols of hate and racism. We should not flee from this part of our past, nor should we celebrate it. We should instead confront it. And cities, towns, and universities should create spaces where this can happen. Historian Tracy McKenzie describes the practice of the past as a mirror. When we take a hard look at the past, we see the best and the worst of ourselves and our people. But in the end, this is the only way to face the hard truths of what we have been, who we are, and what we can become. So today, in our first episode of Season 5 at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, we try to come face-to-face once again with what happened a year ago in Charlottesville, Virginia. Historian Nicole Hemmer is here to help us. Through her A12 podcast, Hemmer provides us with a mirror on the tragic events of August 12, 2017. Despite the trauma she suffered on the streets of Charlottesville on August 12, and the violence that occurred there that we all want to forget, Hemmer knows that the story of racial violence in this Virginia town needs to be told 
and interpreted, we must never forget. Thanks, John. Our guest today is Nicole Hemmer. As a political historian and writer, Hemmer is dedicated to bringing a historical perspective to today's most important political debates. She aims to move past the worst sort of punditry that is reflexive rather than reflective, that chases the ephemeral rather than the essential. In making history accessible to the public, Hemmer fills a number of roles. She's currently assistant professor in presidential studies at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, where she works in the presidential recordings program. She's the co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Made by History at the Washington Post, where she edits daily commentary and analysis from the nation's leading political historians. She's the co-host and producer of Past Present, a podcast where three historians discuss the latest news in American politics and culture, turning hindsight into foresight. She has also written for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, Politico, and The Washington Post. Her book, Messengers of the Right, A History of Conservative Media, was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in September 2016. Our guest today is Nicole Hemmer of the University of Virginia. She is the host of an amazing podcast called A12. The podcast is about the events in Charlottesville in August of 2017. And Nicole brings not only a sort of journalistic flair to the, to the six-part series, but also a historian sensibility to understanding the meaning of Charlottesville. Uh, Nicole, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, some of our listeners may not be familiar with A12, so could you give us a quick overview? You know, what, what, what is A12? Uh, what inspired it? Uh, what are you hoping to accomplish with this podcast? And... Um, Maybe we'll follow up with a question about, I'm still trying to figure out whether it's journalism, history, a combination of both. So tell us a little bit about the podcast. Sure. So A12 looks at the story of what happened last year in Charlottesville. First of all, looking at the broader context of the summer of hate, which was just these months and months during which white nationalists and white supremacists were coming to Charlottesville and being met by counter protesters. And then it sort of steps back and looks at where the events of last summer fit into the broader history of the city and the broader history of America more broadly. Um, what it does is um, it brings in a lot of different voices. So I narrate the series. I talk about my own experiences as someone who covered the events of August 12th for a few different outlets. Um, but then I bring in, you know, other witnesses, uh, city leaders, and a lot of scholars. Uh, historians to try to help make sense of, you know, what was it that actually happened last year and what did it all mean? So what um, what are you hoping to accomplish with the uh, with it? What is your what is the the kind of mission of the podcast, if you will, this six part series? Sure. Well, a lot of what I was reading about Charlottesville um, and the events there last year either tended to be purely journalistic so let's take a look at reconstructing the events of last summer, or let's follow these characters who were there last summer, or they tended to be kind of abstracted out. Um, so there's, a, and I don't mean that necessarily in a critical way, there's a really great set of essays from the University of Virginia academics called Charlottesville 2017. And it's a really fantastic collection, but it is a scholarly collection. And so what I wanted to do was kind of bring all of those pieces together, because the thing about what happened last year was that it was journalistic, it was historical, and for me, it was deeply personal. Yeah, we'll get to that personal angle. So this is this is a a kind of kind of at the inter. Explain this. What what is the genre here? Is this at the, sort of the intersection of journalism and history? And a lot of what you're doing, I think, in this in this documentary is also what you do kind of professionally, right? So maybe you could tell us how journalism and history kind of come together in this and really in some ways how that has also kind of shaped your public work as well, that, that intersection. Yes. So this podcast series really is an expression of the kind of career that I've developed right. over the last uh, five, five to 10 years. Um, so I am trained as a historian. I have a PhD from Columbia and I've, I've taught, um, I hold an assistant professorship at the university of Virginia. Um, but I also work in journalism. So mostly as an analyst, um, mostly as someone who writes columns for a variety of different outlets. Um, right now I'm writing for Vox 
mm-hmm. the online site, and also a syndicated column in Australia. And so I'm used to thinking about the contemporary landscape through a historical lens. I think you used the phrase historical sensibility earlier. Right, right. And I, I tend to think that is what I bring to the table, a historical sensibility. How can we look at the events of the day through a slightly shifted lens, especially in these periods of, you know, not just trauma, but but where things seem so unexpected and so right. fast paced that we don't necessarily immediately get a, um, a framework yeah. for thinking about them. And so that's something that I want to bring to the table. Yeah, sort of bringing a long view to, uh, uh, to contemporary events. Well, especially like something like this, right? Like there are Nazis marching through the streets right, of Charlottesville. Right. How do we make sense of that? Yeah, sure. Well, I want to step in here, uh, you know, as the producer of, of this podcast and, uh, you know, I want to talk shop a little bit. So t- <laughs> tell us about the process of putting the podcast together. How did you do uh, the work and, and, you know, what, what all was involved in conducting interviews and, and actually recording and, and putting together this work? Yeah, so it actually was a pretty intense, but really great experience. So I have a podcast, but it is a conversational podcast, past, present, where we just kind of chat about what's happening in the news from a historical perspective. This, as a narrated kind of documentary style uh, podcast, was something very different for me. Um, And so part of it was that I just had to learn how to do interviews, um, which is something that I really hadn't ever done before. Um, so I had three different ways of doing interviews. Um, I brought people into, if they were local, to a small studio on UVA's campus where we just sat in the room and had a conversation. And those conversations tended to last an hour to an hour and a half. They tended to be quite intense, um, particularly for people who were reliving their memories and their traumas from last year. And then I also had a field kit that I took out um, to interview people in the community. And then for scholars who were um, outside of of Charlottesville, um, I picked up some techniques from David Folkenflick at NPR, um, who taught me how to get the best possible sound when recording people remotely. So I, I uh, collected all of those interviews and then, you know, I actually, this was a solo project. So I did everything from the cover art to the music that you hear in there um, and pieced it all together using Audacity. So it was just you, Nicole. You didn't have any assistants or studio producers or you just learned it all on your own. Yeah, it was just wow. me. I knew how to do basic audio production sure. from, uh, I taught myself how to do it when we started past present. So I knew how to like clip sound in Audacity. Um, but the rest of it, I just kind of had to learn. Did you have any music background? Because you wrote the you wrote the music for it as well, right? Do you have that in your background? <laughs> I did. Um, so I took piano lessons when I was a kid. Um, but I, <laughs> so I don't have any sort of composing experience. Right. Um, um, yeah, you know, I wrote the um, the intro music for Past Present as well, but I, I do have a bit of an ear for it. Okay. So, so piece that the music for the intro together. I was I had I think this is what really helped with all of this. I had a very clear vision for what I wanted, sure. and so in many ways it was just figuring out how to translate that vision and I guess that sound um, in the with using the skills that I have. So I have a, a, a keyboard at in my apartment and did the rest on the computer and figured it out from there. Drew is very impressed as a, as a musician, <laughs> as a front man for a band and a podcast producer. He's over here smiling and nodding his head. <laughs> I might, I might have to take a trip down and, and visit you and get some lessons on being even better at this uh, Jack of all trades. I, yeah. Why aren't work. we incorporating more music and things? I, I tried. <laughs> let's get Nicole, let's get into some of the, some of the specifics of, of sure. the, some of the big themes here. Um, one of the things I love what you do in episode four, uh, you ask uh, a question. I don't think I have it exactly right. So forgive me or tell me if I, if I, if I got it wrong, but you say something to the effect of how much did the white supremacists at Charlottesville represent an attack on the city and how much did they have a claim on the city? And I love the way that question's phrased. And then, and then I think you also put it this way, to what extent are they, meaning the white supremacists, to what extent are they us or at least part of us? Could you elaborate a little bit on sort of what you mean by that idea that we may be looking in a mirror here when we study Charlottesville? Yeah, you know, I was very taken 
in the aftermath of the events of last summer by there's a hashtag that went around that, uh, for the whole country, you know, this is not us. Right. Um, and this tendency to see what happened in Charlottesville as an invasion. And certainly many of the white nationalists who came that day and, and a lot of the protesters as well um, were not from Charlottesville. But I think that there was an attempt or a tendency to distance the city from what was happening within it. And I, I mean, here's the thing, Jason Kessler, who was the organizer of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, so um, the alt-right yeah, white nationalist yeah. figure who organized it, um, he's a Charlottesvillian. Um, Richard Spencer, yeah. um, though not native to Charlottesville, was a UVA graduate. Right. And I think that it's important to understand the extent to which, not necessarily the the fringes of violent white nationalism flourish in all of our towns, um, but the extent to which a lot of us are somewhere on that spectrum, white, right? right? Like the, the ideas of white supremacy, white nationalism, racism are not necessarily things that have been purged from American culture and certainly not from white America. And so, yes, it is true that you know, Charlottesville is not on a daily basis teeming with Nazis, but there are these um, ideas of white supremacy that are are still part of the community. And I think that that's something that it's really useful for Charlottesvilleans and Americans more broadly, frankly, um, to wrestle with. No, I think you do a great job of sort of teasing that idea out, especially also with your with your experts that you have on and that you interviewed. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the police in Charlottesville mm-hmm. on that day. I love the word picture that you paint in episode one. You talk about how the police had their backs uh, to the uh, to was it the Lee Monument or was this the Jefferson Monument? I can't remember what you were talking about there, but I think it was the Lee Monument. The police, it was the Lee Monument. Yeah, the police had their backs to the monument almost as if they were protecting the alt-right and their right to assemble uh, from the anti-racist, right, Antifa and others, the anti-racist protesters. So, you know, you you explore this then in a later episode. I think it's called Who's Who's Watching the Watchers. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. You, yeah, you you. So tell me about your take on on the police that day. Uh, and then you you delve into with some of your experts too. sort of you historicize this, the history of law enforcement and so forth. In some ways, if we know the history of law enforcement in the South, we may not be as surprised that uh, the police acted this way. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that. Sure. So I have to say one of the most shocking experiences, and I'm white, so I I think that this is perhaps part of the reason why I found found it shocking and not um, a matter of course, but one of the most shocking experiences on August 12th when I was downtown was watching this one moment where I watched a gang of white nationalists just beat half to death a black man in a parking garage. And that parking garage is right next to the police department and police were there and they stood by and they watched. And that whole day, police stood by and they watched. And so part of it is a a personal experience. And part of the challenge of doing the episode on the police in this uh, this series was I had such a strong reaction to that, that I didn't want to just you know, go down the line of being like, all police officers are white nationalists and defenders of the Klan and defenders of neo-Nazis, because of course that isn't the case. Um, But it it was extremely helpful to do a couple of different things. One, to really talk about the origins of of policing in the United States, from its origins in the slave patrols to especially in the South, the way that Southern sheriffs and police departments were for well over a century defenders of a white nationalist order in the South. And frankly, you know, this isn't just a Southern story, right? I mean, this is something we see across America. Um, But it was also so extremely helpful to talk to Dahlia Lithwick, who's the um, the court analyst for Slate, who made the point, which I think is an important one, which is to say that, you know, the slogan cops and the Klan go hand in hand while understandable. And I think, uh, you know, they definitely were defending uh, the Klan in July when they came to Charlottesville and the alt-right when they came to Charlottesville in August. But they're not the Klan, at least 
most of right. them are not right. the Klan. Um, and that actually is different yeah. from the 1950s and the 1960s when most of your police department would have been the Klan. So, th- so there has been change over time. Things have actually changed. They probably haven't changed as much as we would have liked. Um, and I think we saw that in Charlottesville, this tendency to protect the statue and protect white supremacists and to see anti-racist activists as um, the source of trouble rather than the defenders of the city. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of your conversations with Dahlia Lithwick, you also get into a really fascinating conversation with her about the legal dimensions and especially the Bill of Rights, uh, the First and Second Amendment. Um, and I, I can't remember if it's you or her. It might have been you who says um, at Charlottesville on, on August 12th, the Second Amendment swallowed the First Amendment. You have a lot of discussion about the way in which the white supremacists actually interpreted the First Amendment. But and that's fascinating, too. But we just don't have time to get into that. I want to I want you to talk a little bit with us about the relationship between the First and Second Amendment and how they were in many ways kind of at odds or, you know, were were both being played out in kind of different kind of ways that day in Charlottesville. Yeah, so I borrowed the phrase and have been transfixed by it ever since I first heard it from Dahlia. Um, I borrowed the phrase, um, the the Second Amendment swallowing the First right. Amendment, because it, it actually is a very evocative way of thinking about what happens when these two, really in the 20th century, rapidly expanding sets of rights, the First Amendment and the right to free speech and free assembly, uh, free press, and the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, they, they explode, particularly in the second half of the 20th century. And as they do, they start to come into conflict. And what I mean when I say they come into conflict, what does it mean to have genuine free speech rights? when the side you're arguing the side you're arguing against has uh has arms has right. guns um is there a chilling effect caused by someone having long arms and rifles and uzis um your ability to actually have a debate with them or to have yeah. any sort of confrontational speech um or criticism of them is really limited when they could shoot you yeah and that's something that Dahlia has uh, worked on extensively, and I think compellingly that we that we don't actually know what the line between those two things are. Now, one of the things that she points out, and that the uh, dean of the law school at UVA, Risa Golubov, points out, is that that line between these two rights is shifting and it's blurring, and the alt right knows that and is taking advantage of the the lack of clarity between those two to constitutional rights. Right, right. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, actually, a, a colleague of mine at, at Lehigh um, was previously in Colorado, uh, and I can't remember at which of the, of the state universities, but at, at one of them, and he was testifying in front of the state legislature trying to convince them not to allow the carrying of arms on campus in, in Colorado. And, and he had this kind of shocking moment when he realized many of the state legislators said, well, we're carrying our arms right now. And and all of a sudden, you know, here he is testifying in front of this chamber of, of lawmakers and realizing that he's outgunned even in the halls of, of the legislature. But I, I also want to transition here to another angle on this this First Amendment issue. And in the news recently, we've seen that uh, the New Yorker walking back their invitation to a, another kind of famous alt-writer, Steve Bannon, uh, and walking back their invitation to have him speak in within this context of, of a free exchange of ideas. Um, you made a decision not to interview members of the alt-right who were in Charlottesville on August 12th. So explain that decision. Sure. This is something that I thought quite a lot about. Um, I'm an expert on the alt-right, and people like Jason Kessler and Richard Spencer, um, who were present that day, August 11th and August 12th in Charlottesville and throughout the summer, of hate are actually quite easy to find and ready to be interviewed anytime that somebody will stick a microphone in their face. I didn't think that it was necessary to interview them in order to um, understand the belief system behind the alt-right. We have scholars of white nationalism like Kathleen Ballou, um, my own expertise in the area, um, people like Ibram Kendi, who has mapped the history of racism in the United States, um, and bringing on experts to talk about that. And the reason why I think that's important is because 
there's a tendency, and you heard this when Jason Kessler appeared on NPR the weekend of the anniversary this year, a tendency to obfuscate, to lie, to talk in terms of white civil rights instead of being really honest about what white nationalism actually is and what white supremacy actually is. So A, I don't think we learn a lot from them. And B, it has been my experience that the more press attention that this particular group of white supremacists gets, the more likely they are to stage public events. And as we saw in Charlottesville, those public events come with a real cost. And so it seemed, and reasonable people disagree on this, so I don't want to make this some sort of moral absolute, but it seemed to me unnecessary to uh, um, ramp up the potential for white nationalist gatherings, white supremacist violence on the eve of the anniversary of August 11th and 12th. Um, there were other ways to get the kind of information that I wanted. And I was unlikely to get honest information sure. from either one of them. Has anyone from the alt-right uh, sort of responded to this podcast series yet or criticized A12 in any way because of the lack of those voices? They haven't, actually. Okay. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, and I, I just as a kind of side note, is... Um, the abuse that I copped from the alt-right really peaked in 2016. Yeah. Once the election was over, especially the kinds of um, online, really like trolling, right. diminished quite a bit, which is not to say it doesn't still happen. It, it certainly yeah. does. Um, but in this case, um, I haven't received any. And I think that's consistent with the pattern that I've seen. Okay, good. We have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are interested in, um, probably because of my own scholarship, are interested in religion or American religious history. One of the things that kept coming up, especially in the early episodes, as you began to chronicle the sort of moment by moment events of August 11th and 12th, was uh, was the presence of the clergy. Uh, can mm-hmm. you can you share with us maybe one or two stories um, about uh, the presence of of uh, clergy in the midst of the chaos that day in Charlottesville? or even Friday night. Sure. So clergy were pivotally important in the activism in the city. And this is um, this ranges from uh, white clergy, African-American clergy, um, to the, the synagogue and the rabbis at the right. synagogue. These were all communities under threat. And from what I understand from speaking with um, Rabbi Tom Goodhertz, who is the senior rabbi at Congregation Beth Israel, which is the sole, um, sole yeah. synagogue in Charlottesville and is, uh, you know, right across the street from uh, the Robert Ely statue. Yeah. Um, is that the summer of hate was actually an opportunity for, um, the Jewish community and the African American community in Charlottesville to forge some ties that they hadn't forged before. Mm -hmm. And so what you actually see in Charlottesville is a uniting of clergy from across denominations, across religions, and also to a certain extent across sort of activist beliefs. Yeah. Um, there there are certainly some divisions within the clergy community here about how forcefully the clergy should um, be involved, uh, yeah. what the tactics for the day should be. Um, but there was also, and this was something that I got from many of the Jewish citizens of Charlottesville that I interviewed, there was a real sense of support from the entire faith community in Charlottesville. Um, the, the synagogue in particular was under siege throughout the summer of hate. It was a very visible sign of Judaism in the city. It was so closely located to the violence of those days. Um, it was constantly threatened with, um, you know, being torched with being shot up, um, just as some of the, the more left-leaning Christian churches were, um, and so the the way that the faith community and the clergy in particular organized and supported one another, I think for many Charlottesvillians has shown, you know, a, sort of a new site of activism in the city, sure. something that I don't think was really very active before 2015. Were there, and you don't mention this at all in the episode, but I'm just curious, were there any, um, I realize all these clergy were very progressive and mostly were sort of mainline Protestants, or again, you mentioned um, rabbis. Were there any evangelical groups uh, that were joining these kind of prayer meetings and this kind of clerical resistance in Charlottesville? Or maybe you don't know. I'm just, I'm just more curious than anything else. 
Sure. Um, so I haven't mapped it out fully, but I will say that in 2015, a clergy collective was established in Charlottesville in response to the uh, the massacre in Charleston. Um, and there was this feeling within that that started with a more conservative um, AME church yeah. here in Charlottesville um, that there wasn't there weren't a lot of ties between faith leaders in the community. So I think that that was a more I, I would say that that was a more conservative in yeah. the sense of, of um, if not politically conservative, although I think there was some of that, um, certainly more hesitant to be on the front lines right. kind of group. Right. And Congregate Seville, which was a much more progressive, much uh, more left-leaning, and much more activist group, emerges in the summer of 2017 in response to what they see as sort of a conservatism um, in the clergy collective. So that's where you see that. But it doesn't it doesn't seem like, um, you know, you mentioned this AME pastor It doesn't seem like white evangelicals were very present um, in this in this uh, on this day. I, I would say that is yeah, that, absolutely the case. That's fair. OK. Now, you were on the streets of Charlottesville. You already mentioned that you were there reporting for the website Vox. Uh, they asked you to go out and, and quote unquote, cover it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Now. One of the things you share in episode six, because of your experience that day on the streets in Charlottesville, you have some memory loss and you've actually been diagnosed, um, as others have as well, with post-traumatic stress disorder. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, and I'm really much more interested in the way in which working on this project, A12, kind of helped, uh, exacerbated, you know, this diagnosis. (laughs) I mean, what was, what was the relationship between you putting together this documentary podcast and, uh, the medical condition that you, you suffered in the wake of it? Sure. Well, I think they're actually quite closely connected. Um, I was diagnosed in November of 2017. I worked very closely with a trauma counselor. As you can imagine, trauma counselors in Charlottesville were working overtime in 2017. Um, And if I had not had that experience of working with that counselor, and this is something that people I interviewed said as well, had they not had trauma counseling, they would not have actually been able to talk in deep ways about their experiences that day. And I don't think I would have either. I think that for me, my trauma counseling kind of started to come to an end in March. I mean, generally, you know, it it takes um, for just a a case like mine often takes about three months to work through in trauma counseling, which is not to say that the effects don't linger, but that the the skills that you need to deal with it, um, somebody like me with a milder case of this can, um, can learn in a shorter amount of time. So I had been able to sort of process and think through the experiences that I had and and what they meant and what that experience of memory loss and trauma was actually like. And that comes to shape the story that I tell in A12, right? Um, I use a, a metaphor of my own memory loss and my own trauma for the whole in the history of Charlottesville um, and the trauma that Charlottesville has experienced um, and Charlottesvillians have experienced, particularly people of color in Charlottesville uh, since the days of of slavery. And so I I do think that it was um, really formative and it helped sort of shape the search for me. Like I'm never going to have my full memories of that day. That's just a, a consequence of a, a trauma. Like they're, they're not there to be recovered. Um, but the history actually can be recovered and there's okay. something, uh, restorative about that. And I think it was also really powerful and really important to sit down and talk with people who had experienced trauma as well. And we're, work- and we're working through it. I mean, I definitely needed a lot of long breaks after some of the interviews. Sure, sure. Um, but I think by and large, it was a cathartic experience. Yeah. I think a lot of people are are going to be really appreciative if they haven't listened to this about the courage you show in sort of sharing this. It just adds such a, such a profound layer to the, to the sort of documentary dimension, the history, the objective, so forth, uh, you know, or as objective as you can be on something like this. Right. So uh, again, I appreciate your willingness to kind of add this layer to the, uh, to the story um, that you tell. Um, and I also loved, who was the professor from UVA where you talked then about the trauma that 
you know, like the civil rights movement leaders. I took a mm. civil rights bus tour a couple of years ago and, you know, we did all the stops and I'm not a civil rights historian. So I kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things. And then that professor, um, what was her name? It was Claudrina Harold. Yeah. She reflected on just how that trauma, I think she said something like, how did they live with this trauma, you know, mm-hmm. every single day? And, and that just really kind of historicized that for me. So, um, yeah, I, I loved episode six. Um, wrapping up, we only have a little time left here, Nicole. Um, I'm curious to know how the A12 uh, has been received so far in Charlottesville. And then maybe just kind of a wrap up kind of question. Um, you know, how does Charlottesville move forward in the wake of the summer of hate? Mm-hmm. Um, are they taking any tangible steps or what is your sort of diagnosis for moving forward as a kind of public intellectual and a, a historian who is sort of trying to bring the past to bear on contemporary life? So first, how is the po- how has the podcast been um, accepted in Charlottesville and beyond? So I will say this was one of those projects that because it was so personal to me was really just, you know, for the the three and a half months that I worked on it, I had blinders on and I had no idea how it was going to be received. But I I felt like I had this story that I really needed to tell and to explore. Um, I was so surprised the day that it launched. I did an event um, in Charlottesville to a, a packed house. And played some clips and talked about the, the the work that went into the podcast. And people were so engaged yeah. and so appreciative. And this is something that I've seen time and time again in Charlottesville. That people, it helped people to understand their city better. Right. And it validated, I think, for many people, their experiences. Because the national news stories were really about August 11th and 12th. But as I, I document in the first episode of the podcast, this was something that had been unraveling for months in Charlottesville. And so to be able to capture that whole story, I think was important for a lot of people. So I will say, surprisingly to me, in many ways, um, people have been, you know, moved and engaged and affected by the podcast in ways that I certainly couldn't have anticipated. Yeah, this is a you know, for those listeners out there who, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the way historical inflection on the past can can have some kind of a social justice or contemporary, you know, make make meaning in contemporary life in local towns and communities and places. I mean, in some ways, what you did is inspirational for those people who want to have a much deeper, more thoughtful engagement with social issues in their in their own day and age. So our guest today was Nicole Hemmer. She is the creator of and host of a, she even did the music of a (laughs) a fabulous podcast called A12 on the history of Charlottesville uh, in the context of the August 11th and 12th racial violence that occurred there. Uh, Nicole, how can we get in touch with you? How can we follow you? Do you have a website? Um, Tell us your Twitter handle. Sure. Um, So I, I am pretty active on Twitter at Past Punditry. Um, and you can also reach out to me if you go to the UVA website. You can find my email address. Um, I'm more than happy to field the emails. And you can visit my website, which is pastpundit.com. Great. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking some time from up in Nova Scotia, of all places. So, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, on a remote island somewhere exactly. in the uh, hey, Atlantic. How do, I, how do I get that gig, Drew? Thanks a lot, Nicole. Have a great day. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, Drew, what a great way to start season five, huh? Not only is this such an important work, but I mean, I've, I think that was a, a really illuminating conversation with somebody who's doing history while experiencing history. I mean, it's very rare that you get to meet someone who is balancing between those experiences, who are, is both taking a detached look while also yeah. coming coming to grips with a very traumatic experience that she went through. Yeah, I think I think Nicole Hemmer just generally, the way she's constructed her career just fascinates me. If I had the guts back when I was starting out, I, I probably would have used her as a model. I really love the way that she is really interested in speaking into our culture from a historical inflection. 
And again, if you get the chance, listen to this podcast. It, it has a kind of NPR type feel to it. And, and the storytelling is amazing. But I really respect the way in which she is trying to make sense of all of this and using her skills as a historian to do so. Well, she's only the beginning here in season five. We've got a really exciting lineup already coming together. So we're really lucky. Uh, we should also probably mention the new person behind the behind the knobs and switches over here in the booth. That's right. Uh, we will be introducing on the blog uh, shortly, Abigail LaBianca. Uh, she is with us this year as our new studio producer. We're going to miss Josh. He did a great job for us. I'm also really excited about the prospects for the future. Well, you know something? I was looking through the screen uh, during this episode, and usually Josh would just sit back, and sometimes I thought he fell asleep back there. But Abigail's very engaged. She's smiling. She's laughing at the jokes. So so this is going to be good. Not that Josh was bad. Josh was great. We love Josh. Josh, we love you. (laughs) But but it was just just fun to see how Abigail uh, was engaged. And I should add that I had the privilege as well of teaching her older sister, Emily LaBianca, who is a history major here at Messiah College. So uh, it's, uh, it's good to have you with us, um, Abigail. She's yeah, smiling and waving. So we're going to introduce her on the blog shortly. So be looking for that. I think one of my favorite things about bringing in these, these audio engineers is tricking uh, sound engineering majors to yeah. have a, a non-credit history class with us <laughs> <That's right. laughs> every That's other right. week. Yeah, yeah. Well, I should also mention again, that, I mean, we're, we're really excited to have Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group on board. I, I want to speak a little bit to what he is doing. I mean, he is really trying to to provide some of these educational opportunities this, or, or facilitate these kinds of educational opportunities that you're talking about in, in both your commentary and also what, what Nicole brought up in some of her conversation. He cares deeply about good history and the value, the social value of good history and communities. And I think this episode, basically what we did today with Nicole was local history, right? So, uh, I mean, it had national implications, right? But, but a lot of her project is really rooted in that kind of local history of a particular town and so forth. So it's actually a perfect episode, I think, to introduce our new sponsor, the Lindhurst Group and Bob Beatty. So again, that's lindhurstgroup.org l-y-n-d-h-u-r-s-t g-r-o-u-p dot org well Drew I think that's a wrap I think it is uh, season 5 is looking good I'm we excited. are ready to roll here through season 5 but in the meantime for all of you out there may your way of improvement always lead home This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsors, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, and the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Hey, Drew, weren't you in that band? For a little bit. Many thanks to our guest, Nicole Hemmer. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.